And we wanted to just completely eliminate those not-so-good elements and then upscale basically everything else in the product. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Andre from Carthoop, and welcome to the Growth Theory Podcast. So today's episode is a little bit different because we're not going to talk all about marketing and sales and conversion optimization and so on, but rather we're going to talk about the product. How do we build that perfect product from scratch? On today's uh, show, we have Kirpal Baraj, the co-founder of Stay60. Stay60 sells premium reusable water bottles, and honestly, their water bottles are the best-looking bottles out there, and that's that's by design. It took them over two years to design the, the product that you see online right now, and as you will see in this episode, the process wasn't easy at all. You'll find out how they started with the design, how they validated the idea, how they built out an MVP, and then how they launched the first version and the second version, and how they got to scale their business uh, through online and through retail. We've got a lot to cover, so without further ado, Kirpal, you can take it from here. Kirpal, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Amazing. Really great to, to be on. So thanks for inviting me on to the, to the show. But yeah, all, all good, really. Busy, busy week, but I suppose being busy is a good thing. So uh, yeah, you can't really complain. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how did you get started and what is Stay60? Um, so Stay60 is um, a design-led, sort of design-focused, reusable bottle brand. So um, there are countless numbers of reusable bottles on the market, reusable brands. So you know, we are one of those, but we do things quite differently. So we focus on the aesthetic, the design, and also the function as well. So we've kind of taken a good two and a half years to develop the product that you kind of see in front of you today. Um, but yeah, it's a, a tangibly different, and we like to think better product than a lot of the bottles on the market. So all designed from scratch, all built from scratch. Um, but yeah, we started around, I would say two and a half, three years ago with, um, our, what we would call our MVP. So our first initial, um, iteration, because, you know, we had a certain amount of budget. So you need, you know, budget to design things, you need budget to tool things. Um, and tooling is a hell of a lot more expensive than a lot of people might think. So we kind of made a more simplistic, minimal version of what we wanted to do. So we launched that in, I think it was 2018, kind of the start of 2018, that sold well. Uh, and then we've just relaunched with our new product, the, the bottle that we wanted to design and produce with the money that we kind of made from the first iteration to launch the Series 2 at the end of, I would say the start of this year, really, the proper launch. Um, mm -hmm. And that's going well so far. So you were mentioning the initial budget. Um, w were you funded, like, in any way or you you were just putting your own money in the stake and how like how much did you initially need to get the the first uh, mvp off the ground oh good question so we're completely self-funded um there's just a kind of a small team but but um we kind of wanted to keep everything in-house control everything it's it, i suppose it's slightly different from from tech where you need a hell of a lot of money to kind of build a team um and I suppose it, we know if we sell well, then 
you know, the business model is there. If you've, if you've got your margins right, then you are making money. So that's, that's kind of how we looked at it. So to start with a much simpler product was around, you know, the 55, 60K mark that we found between us. Um, and a couple of friends um, as well that we just thought, okay, we can we can do this. We can do a good job of this. Looking at what's already on the market, looking at how we can approach it, and the team that we can sort of assemble around us. We thought actually it's it's a good. I don't want to say punt, but it you know it's a good calculated gamble um, with the expertise that we have um, and the vision that we have. So we thought, okay, let's just do it. And the first version worked for us, um, and. Now, yeah, like I said, we've just reinvested everything um, into the new the new product. Hmm. So you mentioned that the first product, the first version, sold out pretty quickly, and or at least that's what I understand. How did you how did you market it? How did you bring it to to life? Well, I wish it had sold out really quickly. Um, it, it did sell <laughs> out, but I would. It depends what your definition of quickly is. So it wasn't kind of an overnight, you know, or a couple of weeks, and we sold you know, 10,000 units. I mean, that would be amazing. So um, it was, I mean, it did take around, you know, seven, eight months at least. Um, but it was really efficient with the way that we did things. Um, and we were actually on a, a show called um, Dragon's Den in the UK, um, which gave us an incredible platform. Um, and I think we sold twenty over £20,000 worth of stock in one evening through that. Um, wow. So that's, yeah, that's where a lot of it really came from um, in terms of the money that we kind of, we, we made from it. So that was that was a lucky break. Um, you know, they came to us and, and liked our story. Um, mm. And the story resonated on TV and people really warmed to the, the story and the product. And it, and it was just before Christmas. So it kind of, if people were buying it for... Um, Christmas presents. So it worked really well for us. So that, you know, a lot of it, we can thank that TV appearance for getting super efficient sales because we're not paying for advertising. There's no CPA involved. Hmm. So, so basically the, like the TV producers approached you, you did not apply or submit your application in, in, no, no, I think they must've seen our social advertising. So paid Facebook advertising that we had live, Mm -hmm. um, and one of the, their researchers reached out to us. Um, we initially said, probably not right for us just yet a couple of times. Um, and then we're like, what are we doing? This is probably a silly move. We should probably do this. Let's just swallow our pride and go for it. Um, and yeah, it was a really good move that we did. And we changed our mind because um, if we hadn't, that would have been a really, a really stupid move because um, the amount of people that would have seen that um, air on a Sunday evening in the UK was yeah it was really really big big numbers and you can't you know you can't pay for that unless you pay for TV advertising and even you know you don't have that length of ad space it was like a 15 minute slot mm-hmm. you try and pay you try and pay for that on you know uh, primetime um, BBC well a primetime spot in the UK at that time will cost you an absolute fortune so you, yeah mm. it was it was lucky, very lucky. Yeah, and do like, do you think they they like they liked your story or your branding or your product, or it was like a mix of all these? I think it's a, a bit of both. So it's similar to Shark Tank in the US, um, where they can completely and utterly rip you to shreds. Um, 
so what we did is prepare, prepare, prepare. And I never wanted to go on TV um, kind of looking like an idiot and, and not getting my numbers right or something like that. So we prepared like nobody else could really. Um, and, but you, you don't know, it could still go horribly wrong. Um, and they, you know, you might catch one of the investors on a bad day that can happen and they can just tear you to shreds, which you will see multiple times across the program. We, I mean, I remember being there and pitching and thinking this is going incredibly well. So it went well. Um, and I think that was number one. It was a positive story. They really liked the product. Um, and that looks good on TV, obviously. And then people looked at the website, looked at the product. And said, Actually, it's a really good product. And we had a story to tell you know, about the anti-plastic movement because when we were on, it was a bit before the curve um, and everyone kind of um, jumping on it now. Um, so it kind of opened up quite a few people's eyes. And then the catch is a really nice product. Um, and it, you know, as long as you have the user experience to follow up, which we did on the website, then you know, it, it kind of worked quite nicely for us. So that was the moment you you sold out all the product and, and you decided to uh, iterate to phase two of the product, V2? So we were already in process um, of designing the new product. We sold out that week, the following week of all of our stock. So we had a lot of people getting in touch saying, look, when are you back in stock? Why can't I buy this? You know, what are you doing? Like there was, we were getting questions all of the time. So... Um, I mean, we, we, we could have just reordered, but we said, no, look, wait, we have something better coming and we want to do it properly. So we had even retailers getting in touch saying, um, look, can we stock your product? When, you, you know, when are you getting it? When are you getting stock back in? So, um, but we kind of stuck to our guns and said, no, we want to do this properly. We want to release a better version. So um, you know, I'm really sorry, but you know, just have to wait a little oh. bit longer and that, yeah, so we actually, we were offline for around five months at least, I think five to six months, um, where we could have been probably making good money, but we just said no. So we shifted everything, shifted manufacturer, um, changed, yeah, the design was already in process, um, and we wanted to shift manufacturer. We wanted to upscale everything, really, so it takes time. Um, we, yeah, we didn't think we'd sell out that quickly. And because of that, we didn't want to go back to our old manufacturer and order the old product, which we could have, but we wanted to build a new relationship with a better manufacturer, yeah, a better product. And just took, we were upscaling absolutely everything of our business. So it, it took a lot of time, mm. um, but we, we made that decision and we're, we're happy that we, we did. So, yeah, all, all good so far. Yeah, I'm really curious about two things here. First is... Um, how did you how did you design the product? Did you had an in-house designer, someone from your team, or did you hire someone? Because the like the the product design is such a big part of what Stay Sixty and their products uh, do and are. So um, I have um, I'd say I'm a kind of um, closet designer, if that makes sense. So I've worked in advertising for years. But I always appreciate really good design. I nearly went into architecture myself. So um, I kind of appreciate good design. Um, and I've studied product design at a certain level um, in the UK. So I knew what we, what we wanted to achieve in terms of the design and the aesthetic and how important that was. Then it was, and I, as I say, then it was finding the right person to bring that to life. However, I have a very good friend who is a designer who um, is 
it works with us on everything in terms of the um, industrial um, design elements and the CAD elements and everything. So I don't have the technical expertise, but I know kind of, you know, how we want it to look. But then we work with someone who brings that industrial kind of design element and product design element to life. So you get all of the relevant CAD files, all of the 3D files for the for the manufacturers to be able to you know, prototype and build it. So, um, yeah, we we use someone else to do the technical elements for us and, in the design. And I assume you started from scratch, like a clean slate, when you when you started designing the the version two. A hundred percent. Yeah. So both products are completely designed from scratch. They are not kind of off the shelf products. Um, so the yeah, the second one is a complete complete rebuild and complete design anything that we thought didn't work so well in the first product and anything that we think is you know based on a lot of feedback um, and a lot of kind of pains that we had with the first product so there were pains it was the first product we've ever produced you know the paint wasn't right there's a certain function on it that wasn't quite right so when it was good it was great but when it wasn't so good then you have a problem and there was too many elements that made it not so good sometimes and we wanted to just completely eliminate those not so good elements and then upscale basically everything else in the product. But to be able to do that, we had to shift our manufacturing to a far better manufacturer to be able to achieve what we have. So um, it's, it's, it wasn't an easy process at all, far from it. Um, a lot of kind of things were broken along the way. Lots of things were tested. Um, to, that's why it took a lot longer than kind of we had hoped. But um, we, yeah, we finally got there and we're happy with kind of where we are with the, the second iteration of the product. Yeah, this is this is such a common problem, especially with manufacturers that you pretty much like like assessing what is and who is the right manufacturer is it's oftentimes a black box unless you actually travel overseas and then you meet all these you know manufacturers. How did you how did you go about this? How how did you assess what is a better manufacturer? What were some of the uh, things that you looked at? So I'd say, uh, number one, kind of the relevant certification um, on, on certain elements. So that's one, that's kind of almost a hygiene level that, you know, they have to have certain things in place. Um, for us, our first manufacturer was kind of recommended to us by our designer and kind of people that he's worked with. So recommendations are always helpful. I mean, you can go on something like Alibaba or other kind of marketplaces, but I'd say half of the time you're not dealing with the factory, you're dealing with a middleman who um, then, you know, works with the factory to kind of build your product. So you don't have that direct relationship with the manufacturer, which means you can get into some problems with the IP as well, because it's like, who are you having the agreements in place with? Who does the tooling, who is the tooling owned by? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of problems that you can get yourself into if you're designing something from scratch and then getting it built in China. So um, the first one was recommended. Um, the second one, um, our current manufacturers actually reached out to us. Um, so we get a lot of people reaching out to us 99% of the time. It's like, okay, cool, but we're okay. This was a little bit different because um, it was kind of a, uh, the president of the company and um, I checked out their credentials and who they work with. And it was like, oh, okay, so you're the best in the business. Um, then it was like, cool, let's, let's talk. And we just built the relationship from there. Um, and there's been a great relationship ever ever since. So we're we're really happy with it. We were again we were lucky that they came to us. Um, we did our certain amount of kind of vetting of them 
Uh, we had some other kind of new manufacturers in mind as well, but these guys were just, yeah, kind of far and above. You could tell by the professionalism, the communication. Um, we went out to visit them as well, so we could tell, you know, um, in terms of the factory itself. And it, it just sometimes it just feels right, and you can kind of tell. It's like walking into a house and you know, yeah, this is where I'm going to live or kind of, you know, this is for me. Sometimes I go on my gut and it was it just felt right, um, along with all of the kind of necessary things in place. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting story because I can I can agree that back when I was running our e-commerce businesses, I think we've we've like we have been approached by hundreds, if not thousands, of suppliers overseas. Yeah. And for the most part, all of them were like spam. We never really <laughs> took the time to read yeah. those spam emails. So I'm really curious, well, like, how did they approach you? Because it must have been something different. Or I'm really curious. Uh, what... It was LinkedIn. So um, a lot of the times we'll get emails to our kind of support email. They usually just go into kind of junk. Um, it was just it, um, the owner of the factory is also um, American. So it instantly looked different from mm. the usual outreach. And it was completely super, super professional and also just very, very nice um, in terms of just like, hey, look, love what you guys are doing. Um, you know, a client of mine was talking about you guys in a meeting. This is literally word for word. Um, <laughs> and um, he's like, look, it'd be great. You guys are creating something really cool. be great to talk and, you know, maybe we can talk to you about our factory and how we work and operate. It was really relaxed, but also just very professional, very different from the usual outreach from a manufacturer in China, completely different. So it stood out instantly. And then when you can obviously check, you can instantly then check someone's LinkedIn profile from there and then see the, yeah, it's like, okay, you're, you're clearly um, a very, very big hitter um, in you know, manufacturing in China. So it, it was an instant, yeah, great. Let's, let's jump on a call. Sounds really interesting. Okay. Now it's starting to make sense because I was, I was actually wondering like how, like I, I assumed they contacted you through email and there's so many, I mean, most of the emails coming from suppliers are just spam. And I was, yeah. I was really curious. So, uh, so, so you got in touch with, uh, with this new supplier and then, um, how did you go about this? Did you build your a couple of prototypes and the, uh, did you ship them uh, in into UK just to you know see them in in person? How, like, what was the process like? So I think we had four prototypes in total. So we had uh, I can't remember if it was the one or the two in the UK. The first one is a three D printed um, product prototype, so no functionality, just the profile, just the aesthetics of it, and just to understand the sizing, the shape, the, you know, how things fit together mm -hmm. more than anything else. So from that, we could see instantly, like one example, the strap was too big. So we took that down. Then we created a second prototype. Okay, that, a 3D print again. And then we could see that that shape, the size, and the way that everything fitted together was just right. So from there, we were happy. Um, and then we had another two prototypes made in China um, that were from uh, or made in a plastic, um, but were fully functional. So that's where we could test um, the, more the functionality of the cap um, and the durability of the strap more than anything else. They didn't have 
the insulation. It wasn't made out of stainless steel. So it was more, again, shaping functionality of the cap um, and the strap more than anything else. And this is like a, obviously a pre-production sample. So as soon as we had that, it was mainly the cap. As soon as we had that right, then we moved on to saying, okay, cool, let's move on to the tooling side of things and then build this as a like the first tooling sample um, and see where we are with things. Hmm. And since you started working on a V2 up until you actually had it in your hands, in your warehouse, how long does the process took? Wow. So from conception to in the UK, that's, that was over two years. Wow. So we're talking just about yeah. the second version, not the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So even though we were selling the first version, we were still designing the second version. Oh. So this mm-hmm. was, there's a big, so there's an overlap there. So it was a, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a long, long process. Um, I don't, a lot of people would don't realize how long it can take to design a, a product from scratch. I mean, I think that even we were probably being too optimistic because the first product was, that took a long time as well. I mean, that must have taken around um, 12 months, at least 12 months. And that was such a simple product. But because of the technicalities of this product, it, yeah, it, it was like two years. But, you know, if, if you want to do something right, then you can't rush it. And you have to go through certain processes to just ensure that um, you, you are getting the right output and you're, you're putting something in customers' hands that is correct that you should be, you're happy with, and then therefore your customers are happy with. But it is a long process. Hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And we, I, we've been talk, we, we've, we've talked about this before. And a lot of brands, probably the most direct-to-consumer brands, are starting off by just white labeling some kind of product out of a product out of AliExpress. Um, yeah. How? Like, how risky do you think it is to start off the way you did by completely starting from scratch with a new product? Um, I'm really curious about like the risk. You, you think you think companies should start with a unique product from scratch, or it's way better if you if you were to do it again, you would have probably white labeled some kind of AliExpress product. Um, so it, it's a huge risk. Um, I would say that I like a calculated gamble and a calculated risk. Businesses, you know, there are risks at every turn. Everything that you do is kind of a gamble, I suppose. So, yeah, the initial outlay to an investment to completely produce your own product, that's the risk. Because if it doesn't work, then you could lose a lot of money. Um, Like some people could lose hundreds of thousands, for example. Um, so we, we are fully aware that it was a big risk. Um, and we could have produced something that, um, you know, never had product market fit, never was validated in the market because the aesthetics were wrong or the functionality was wrong. Um, you know, that can definitely happen. Thankfully, it didn't. We did the research beforehand to see what people would like. Um, and we, yeah, we did a, a certain amount of consumer research to say, actually, yeah, this makes sense. And people like how it looked. Um, in terms of white labeling, I personally, it's not for me. Um, I believe in building something better. 
otherwise why why getting to the market because essentially we are an eco brand that is um trying to reduce the amount of you know um impact that we have i suppose as um a consumer you know on our environment by reducing the amount of plastic that we um consume therefore reducing the carbon that we you know that we 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 emit as a um you know as 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 humans as people so but how we look at it is um, there's no point of creating more of the same. What's the point? There are so many people that have produced the same looking water bottle, but what's the point? You're just creating the same product, putting your brand on it, but you're not pushing the market. You're not creating something back for the consumer. So what's the point? You're just creating a lot of carbon to produce the same product. I, I personally, I don't see the yeah. point. So that's why we wanted to make something of better quality, functions better, and that has a really distinct aesthetic because, you know, that's that's how we think that we create better products and therefore we, you know, reduce the, the carbon footprint and, you know, we reduce our dependency on plastic because we're creating something that people really want to use. They they create We create desire around it and people want to use it on a daily basis. So... Um, there's a lot of people that will badge water bottles and then put their eco credentials on it, but it doesn't make sense to me um, personally because it's just yeah. kind of profiting from the plastic pollution situation. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I don't think I see more and more brands approaching this this new concept of being eco friendly and reducing waste and reducing pollution. And I personally love that. Uh, especially in the past two years um, since I started, since I started, I started motorcycling and I, I, I saw basically how, like how much pollution all the cars are producing. And I, I kind of started digging into, into the, into the effects of pollution, not just from the cars, but like as, as humans, what we do. Um, and I, I kind of become upset in a sense that so much yeah. of what we do becomes waste and not just it becomes waste it, it becomes it becomes a, it becomes a pollution uh especially in, in especially in some countries uh you would see people throwing you know plastic bottles out of the you know like on the street and i think like that's very sad i think yeah. everyone every single person on this planet should have should have a, a reusable water bottle it's like the first step you can do like no not yeah. not everyone has like no not everyone affords an electric car or some kind of you know expensive uh eco-friendly gadget but you know like for i don't know 20 40 50 bucks you could easily get one of the best uh water bottles and you can start changing uh your uh your ecosystem 100 percent. it's it's not just water bottles either it's, it's anything that is reusable in general and that isn't single serve or single use even face masks at the moment i mean you know reusable face masks are better um it's it's not just the fact that you are using less plastic it's all it's it's the carbon so there are alternatives to kind of single use plastic say you know if you create water that can be in cans for example however the amount of carbon that is used and the amount of oil that is used to pro, uh, pump, process and refrigerate those cans, you know, in a, a fridge, for example, is huge. 
So you're reducing the amount of plastic waste, but it's the use of natural resources that's the other issue that people don't really talk about. So it's always better to carry some form of reusable, whether it's a bottle, you know, or a reusable lunchbox or anything like that, because it's the amount of natural resource that you are not using um, in processing, you know, the single use versions of, you know, your reusable, for example. Yeah. You were mentioning before a few moments ago that you did your research before building the product and you were pretty confident that you, you knew uh, the, like the way the market was shifting. Um, I'm really curious, how, like, how did you conduct this research? I'm asking because uh, we, had a, we had a failure before and we did the research, but we did it in, in a very bad way. So I'm, I'm trying to learn what was some of your, what were some of your, I don't know, methods of, of uh, conducting that research and uh, wh- when did you realize, okay, we've got a validation here? Um, so before we produced anything in terms of, um, mass, um, mass production on our mm-hmm. first product, we had things like, you know, survey monkey with friends and family, um, so where, you know, we could show people pictures of things. We could, you know, ask them what, what they really needed from a product, what they really liked from the product. Then we had, um, like a small group of friends and family that, um, we showed, the designs to, um, you know, like in a kind of a, a little space that we used and just to get some really good feedback, really. And everyone just really liked The first thing that came out was it just looks great. And, you know, it just, and I think a lot of that is maybe the way that we kind of, you know, um, photograph things and the way that we show things in the product and we bring it to life. I think that kind of helped a lot of, I think a lot of what we do is, especially on the first product, it was more simple is the quality of the photography, is the quality of kind of, you know, the, the website and the assets that we have and the copy that we use and the story that we have is as much a part of it as the product itself. So we kind of knew that the way that we were looking at it, which is a very modern approach, the way that we kind of stylize everything, and it's quite Scandinavian, um, it was, that was, you know, everyone was like, oh, this looks beautiful. The first thing was, oh, this looks, this looks great. So, okay, that's, that's a good indicator, number one, because then if it looks great and people are like, oh, that, that looks really nice, you know, you, you're more likely to be able to sell them that product. So, yeah, it, it, it was that level of research. But before we even started on the journey, it was, like I said, I've got a, a background in advertising. So I know all of the kind of, you know, reports, the tools to kind of research market trends and things like that on things, you know, where things are going. Um, so there was a, there was that before we even, you know, got to the kind of stage of asking people what they liked or do they like the look of this and, you know, um, what sort of functionality they would like and things like that. So, and again, a lot of it is, I think a lot of it comes from the owners of a brand um, and also the team you have around you. So the designers, you know, um, the manufacturers to be able to sort of bring an idea to life. But if you've got a good small net team, you can come up with ideas um, and then kind of bounce off each other. And, you know, you kind of, you, you'll come up with the odd idea that might be a bit silly, this functionality that won't work. But again, it's a level of kind of, I suppose, intelligence, a level of taste to say, you know, that probably won't look right. That probably won't make any sense. So, yeah, there's testing along the way, but I think a lot of it comes from within the team that you work with and kind of the founding team as well, I suppose. 
Yeah. By the way, how many people are in your team? There's only the three of us, actually. Wow. Like so full-time. Just... Then... Yeah. yeah. Three. Wow. That That's amazing. So so you, you basically launched the second version. When did you launch it? 2019? Or... Yeah, it was this December, and literally December 2019 when the product landed in the UK. Um, so we had a load of pre-orders um, already um, in place. And because timings were slipping, I, I'm not going to say it went perfectly because we, you know, we have to send out those emails saying, so really sorry guys, but look, it's taking a little bit longer. Um, mm -hmm. But please bear with us. That, uh, yeah, I'll hold my hands up. It took longer than we were hoping and longer than we wanted it to come to market. We were, again, lucky to have the vast majority of our customers. I'd say you know, like a good 98% of people were just like, cool, no worries. Totally get it. Re really pumped to just, you know, get my hands on it. So, you know, whatever it takes. But then you, you will have some people that are like, it's, it's, I've waited too long. So that, that's fair enough. But, yeah, so there was yeah, a, lot of, a lot of process of just shipping it over. Also the QC before it ships over and then getting it to our warehouse which is based in Portsmouth in the UK. And then the backlog of orders to get them all out before Christmas was the big thing for us. So that was the kind of big, big deadline. And we managed to get um, all, all of the pre-orders out before that Christmas. So we were, yeah, we were happy with that. But that was, yeah, very, very stressful. What was throughout, you know, even from the first version up until today, what, what, is, what was some of the most challenging thing that you uh, you had to do. Um, good question. So you, I would say, the actual production of the product and bringing it to life, because you can design, you can have some amazing ideas, you can have a vision of something in your head, um, and you can have a design team that can put something down on paper. But then it's actually bringing that to life and the time it takes to bring something to life. And then sometimes you might have to sacrifice on something. It's, yeah, I'd say it's the actual manufacturing of the product that is probably the biggest pain point. Um, you know, we're in the UK, we can create, you know, pretty, pretty designs, pretty pictures of what we want, but then actually, you know, realizing that visualization is the toughest part. Um, and also things like, Quality control is really tough. On our first product, quality control was a complete nightmare. Um, so we we physically had to check every single product. I think we went through three quality control processes. For, like it was just crazy. I, it, that should never happen. Which is one of the reasons we, the main reason we moved from that manufacturer. Um, that doesn't have to happen this time. One quality control process. Um, and it, everything's good, that's fine. Any any slight adjustments, that's not a problem. It's done and it's done quickly. And the quality is a completely different league. So we learned the hard way in terms of the quality control of a manufacturer. Um, but it's good that we've learned it and then, you know, that's never going to happen again um, because that was probably the biggest pain point. For anyone that's looking to build a product from scratch the way you did... Uh, are there any kind of like leads or indications whether a manufacturer it would be good or bad without having that 
person to commit, you know, manufacturing thousands or, or hundreds of units. So is there any, any way to, to know it before? It's tough. I mean, you can ask them who they manufacture for. I think another one is a really good ambition. So if they are big brands within your market, and those brands are within, you know, sell in the big department stores, you know, whether it's in the US or in Europe, then you know that their quality is good, but you might have the odd manufacturer that might, you know, tell the odd lie, might put a name in and they don't actually manufacture for them. So you have to get, you know, an example of the product that they have manufactured for someone um, to ensure that. But otherwise, a lot of it is like in business, you have to take sometimes people on their word. You can do all the tests, you can do everything, which is what we did for the first round. And then when it came to the quality control report, it was, we just, yeah, it was a completely different story and we were just shocked by it, to be honest. So we had to um, do a hell of a lot of work to rectify that, you know, we didn't rework, we just had to redo a load in terms of a whole nother extra element to the production run and then not, not take a lot of stock. It was just, you, you, we didn't know until we got to that stage, really. But like I said, it was the first time we've ever manufactured anything. And we learned the hard way. And we learned that that, well, you know, that process is never going to happen again, thankfully. Um, mm. But yeah, I'd say the best advice probably is understand who they manufacture for. If you see some good brands on there, that's always a good sign. But, you know, don't just take them on their word. If you can get a sample of it, then, you know, that's always a good indication. Yeah, what what happened back when when we were running our stores? A lot of so we we would see we would we would come, you know come across suppliers and they would say, well, we work with OEM brands or we work with like some of the biggest brands. But when we actually asked them, like, okay, like give us some samples or give us some names, they would they would like, yeah. oh, sorry, we are protected by an NDA, we cannot disclose that. But trust me, like. Uh, we we do work with these brands. So um, what do you think, like, how would you respond to a supplier that says something like this? Um, I mean, that just sounds bad, doesn't it? I mean, they should quite easily be able to say who they manufacture for. Our current manufacturer, uh, you know, they will say who they manufacture for, but they are very clear that they would never infringe anyone's IP in any way, shape or form but they will send you something to show you the quality of something or the finish maybe or something like that. Um, but at every stage, because we would never ever want to infringe on anyone's IP because we would never want anyone to infringe on our IP. So it's, you know, it was more checking the quality. So if they're not willing to tell you or send you anything that just, you know, sounds alarm bells, it's quite easy for them to just mention a couple of brands um, because it's not as if you're going to, you know, take their IP from them. I, I don't see why it would be a problem. So, um, yeah, I would probably stay clear if, if, if someone wasn't willing to share any details. Yeah. And since, since you were mentioning the IP, um, I've seen, even with our own brands, I've seen people going and reproducing our brand on AliExpress. And we've we've been through quite of a quite of a number of, weird cases where we saw our brand on AliExpress and it was like, it was very bad. Uh, and back in the days we, we had like no lawyers, we had no idea like how to do things, no contracts whatsoever. We just yeah. did the designs. Um, were, were you 
prepared like did you prepare some you know documents before like okay we have like you have to sign these kind of documents because a lot of times when you work with overseas suppliers it's like you know you don't really know who they are unless you go there and meet them and it's like this kind of weird dynamic where they can pretty much get you know steal your designs share them with I don't know, some other factories. And then all of a sudden you, you, you know, you're looking on Alibaba and you see your product. Uh, how did you had any, I don't, any issues around this or you, you made sure that you are prepared upfront and like you avoid this kind of situation. So I think number one, it comes from a trusted um, manufacturing partner because then that manufacturing partner is never going to share your IP or try and sell your products. Number one, um, but number two, actually, there's, there's a few things. Um, we have protection in China, um, so design patents on various different elements of the product. So we're, we're covered if anyone tries to, to do anything. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good thing to have in place. We have, although we have a good uh, trusted manufacturing partner, we still have um, a Chinese NDA, which is called an NNN agreement which is uh, non-disclosure, uh, non-competition, and I can't remember the third N. Um, I think it's non-circumvention, which means mm-hmm. that they can't you know, take your um, business from you or something like that. Um, but that's written in, that's bilingual, so that's written in uh, Mandarin and it's written in uh, English as well. So there's absolutely no gray area. That's like, you know, you can't do anything, you know, everything's under uh, under this NNN agreement. So thankfully, it's all of our IP, all of our designs, everything that we've shared with you will never be shared with anyone else. So that's mm-hmm. fine. If you have a manufacturer that doesn't want to sign something like that, then, you know, there's probably a bit of a problem, um, depending on how strict you have it, because if it's too strict, then some people might not want to sign it. So it, there might be a bit of give and take, but, you know, that's that's what we have in place. We also have a, a bilingual manufacturing contract, um, which talks about the costing, the pricing, the tooling again, the IP, the minimal order quantities, everything in place. Because what can happen in China is you will have a first production run and then um, they will happily increase the, the unit prices because they know that they have your tooling um, and it will be a complete pain for you to move that tooling. So yeah, just try and get everything written down, ideally bilingual, um, if you can, so it's um, applicable for Chinese law. Um, then, you know, anything can still happen, let's be honest, but at least you are in a good position if anyone tries to sell your product in China, that, you know, you have all the legals in the right place, and then you can try and instruct someone in China to, to do something about it. That is some of the best advice I've ever heard when it comes to protecting <laughs> your IP. Uh, I'm <laughs> really curious. Did you work with a with an overseas lawyer, or it was a UK based one? So the UK based. We've had um, two lawyers, two two um, IP lawyers. So the first one was a really good lawyer in terms of kind of nice nice to work with. However, when it got to kind of the really detailed elements um, and dealing with things in China, it became way too grey. Um, and it, I just think law shouldn't really be that grey. It should be kind of black and white um, to a point. So we then instructed someone else, again in the UK, 
So they have like a team, a network that they will use if you want to protect your IP in the US, um, in Canada or in China, then they have their network that they go to their agents within those territories to, you know, to work on the agreements, to, mm. to, to work on the IP, to um, apply for patents and things like that. So we do everything through a UK lawyer who then uses their agents in the relevant territory to you know, do the protection and the agreements and everything. And did you start this whole process right from the beginning or it was something that you learned by, by working with the manufacturers? Like, okay, like we have to protect ourselves. Uh, it's, it's a learning curve, I would say. Um, I, I'll be honest, I've never heard of an NNN agreement before, <laughs> you know, we, we, you know, we kind of got ourselves really into this process. I thought, oh, an NDA is absolutely fine. Um, but you know, it's from, you know, a lot of things that we've read, it's not really that applicable in China. However, again, this all goes back to having a trusted manufacturer. Then if you have a trusted manufacturer in the first place, then you you won't have a problem. However, if you protect yourself and have a trusted manufacturer, then you really will, um, you know, be in the best position you can be. But for us, I think we kind of were learning along the way. We didn't do everything perfectly right, far from it, the first time around. I would kind of see things as a learning curve. As long as you, if you make a mistake, maybe, or things aren't quite right, as long as you learn from it and then, you know, make sure that things are in a better position moving forward, then I think, it's it's you know it can be a, a good thing so yeah it's, there's a there's a big investment involved in terms of ip contracts but it's you know it's it's definitely worth it i would say when you when you say investment is it something like i don't know four figures five figures of like financial commitment to get something like this uh approved signed and yeah oh um in terms of the so not so not including any IP protection in terms of just the agreements, um, you can, the, the cost differences are so ridiculous. So um, I've been quoted something insane, like I think it was eight to $10,000 just for a bilingual NNN agreement. So that, which is unbelievable. Um, so I think the NNN agreement that we had um, written for us, which is all like completely um great the the quality that you need um i think we paid yeah it was a couple of grand i think in the end a couple of thousand pounds and then the rest of it in terms of agreements i would say ooh, around six seven thousand maybe maximum that's yeah that, that's quite of a decent number i was yeah. expecting way more especially when you work overseas and there's so many stakeholders involved it's not like a really straightforward process i was expecting a, a way higher number so this is i mean it, it it means that when you're starting if you're planning on starting to build your own product it's definitely worth adding this cost in the beginning of the process yeah yeah i would say so so that's not any of the ip protection at all that's just the agreements mm -hmm. but if you have a good lawyer then you should be able to get a good price on maybe not the IP because the IP is always in protections or will always cost you a lot of money because you have to think about the territories um, that you want to um, apply for. So whether that is um, a utility patent, whether that is you know, a design patent, 
there's so many ways that you can do it. Um, so, yeah, we have a number of patent design utility in lots of different territories, mainly designed, uh, you know, protecting the look, the overall shape of this, you know, the whole product. But also we've, you know, we have patents over specific parts of the product. So, for example, if someone tried to do this, the, the strap that we have um, and put it on a different bottle, they couldn't because that is singularly uh, protected as well. So we've done it in a real way that makes it difficult for anyone to kind of um, copy, you know, the whole product or elements of the product. Um, so that took us a long time in terms of, you know, the approach, um, thinking of how to do it, how best to do it, how best to, to um, protect things. But the investment's big. Um, so you might not need to protect as much as we did maybe we don't need to we we haven't needed to have protected as much as we have but yeah there's a, there's a big big investment there um so yeah it's it's in the five figures but it's in the big five figures so um wow. yeah it's you just don't realize i mean before we started we had no idea how much ip protection will cost and also a lot of what will happen is you have to then roll them over um in certain territories Look, every year or every, you know, it's, it's so much, um, because yeah, we have lots of different territories covered, um, in terms of the design. So we just thought, okay, if we're going to do it, we'll, we'll do it. You have to do it within a certain time frame as well. That's the other thing. Um, so that's why we thought, okay, let's just do it. Let's just put the investment in and let's go for it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of money. There's a lot of work involved, but again, a good lawyer will take that burden off you will have the best advice and then we'll basically just facilitate all of it for you across the different territories. And then you can just kind of get on with the day-to-day things that you need to get on with. Yeah, absolutely. It looks, yeah, it, it sounds like it's a really resource intensive process. And so you're still, uh, even today, completely self-funded and haven't raised any money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Still a hundred percent, um, self-funded. Although, um, we're not sure if we are looking for investment. We have, yeah, we do have some people reaching out and we are speaking to some people. So it will be a case of doing it to accelerate our growth um, kind of more than anything else. And especially in the current climate in terms of D2C budget for, you know, good marketing, good content um, is definitely something we're looking at now. But it depends when you... You know, people look for investment too early and then people can take, whether it's angel investors or, you know, VCs can take too much of your business. So we wanted to get to a point where, you know, we have something tangible. We have something we think is good um, and that other people think is good. Um, and then we can go, we're in a much stronger position with an investor um, to sit down with them and say, okay, this is what we have. This is what we're building. This is what we've achieved so far. This is where we are in terms of retail. Um, this is the feedback that we're getting this is the network that we have in place. And actually it's a much bigger pot. It's a much bigger, you know, piece that someone can invest in. Then we have more of the business because, you know, they won't take as much of a share as they would if it was, you know, in its, in its infancy, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And what is next for, uh, what's next for stay 60 and for you? Good question. Um, so, it's yeah it's busy at the moment it's um increasing our i would say retail footprint 100 percent and 
distribution globally is the next big thing for us. Um, so it's it's getting ourselves out of kind of, you know, UK is our main territory. Um, we do okay in certain other territories, but we're not targeting them, targeting them massively. So we need, you know, distribution would be great for us to really, um, really expand things. So that's, that's kind of the next, next thing for us. And then we can develop more products um, and kind of, you know, develop our range a bit more. But yeah, retail and retail distributions are our big kind of next step, I would say. Awesome. I'm really excited to see what you guys are going to design next. It's just because that it, it looks like all your products, I mean, your product is really meticulously designed. So if you're expanding into other kind of products, I'm really looking forward to see uh, what's next. Oh, cheers. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I think we'll stay in kind of the hydration market and maybe coffee and things like that. I mm-hmm. think it's drinkware. That's kind of where we, reusable drinkware is a big thing for us. And then, yeah, it's kind of, let's let's see what the future holds. But yeah, a lot a lot more hard work along the way. But um, yeah, fingers crossed it, it, it goes smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one last question that, that we ask before we close is, if you could send one text message to every person in the world, uh, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it'll be something really simple. Um, something simple as just be nice. Like that's just it. Be nice. There's too many, <laughs> too many people <laughs> that are, um, uh, I won't name any names or any kind of politicians or anyone that's um, famous, but um, there are too many people that are happy to jump on people when they've done something wrong or jump on, you know, or um, not treat someone right because they might be from a different background or something like that. You know, let's just be nice. That's probably the best advice you can give anyone. It's, um, it's that. So, yeah, that's that's probably it. Um, awesome. But I should probably have thought that answer through a bit more, but um, that's all I can think of at the moment. No, I think I think that's that's a really strong message, and it's a really simple but great one because yeah, for some reason, the the way you said it is like a lot of people are, are just a holes, and yeah, basically we need we need yeah we need more more nice people and we need more love on this planet. Yeah, hundred awesome. percent, totally agree. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, one last question: where where is the best place for people to connect with you if they want to learn more about Stay Sixty or uh, yourself? Yeah, so either just stay60.com, um, which is S-T-A-Y-S-I-X-T-Y.com. Um, and then if anyone wants to reach out personally, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I have a very distinct name, so um, it's, I'm easy enough to find. Thanks for joining us today. If you're on Shopify, check out cardloop.io or just search for Cardloop in the Shopify app store. Cardloop is a text messaging platform your customers will love. It not only helps you increase your sales, but it also provides a better shopping experience for your customers by building one-to-one relationships with each one of them through text messages. And the cool thing about it is that there's no time required for you and your team, as we've got a whole team of experts handling the conversations 24-7. If you wanna learn more about it or test drive Cardloop, We've got a seven-day free trial, so just go to carlo.io and get started for free. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.